0: Hi, this is John Curry. Welcome to another episode of John Curry's Secure Retirement Podcast. I'm excited about today's guest because Dr. Nancy Van Vessel is with me today. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Every time we get together, we have I call them dynamic conversations. We talk about healthcare, we talk about financial planning, retirement planning. I'm always amazed at how much you know when it comes to tax planning, retirement planning, financial planning. But first, let's talk about your career. You're a medical okay. doctor. Tell our audience about your background. Why did you decide to become a physician and what you're doing today?
1: Well, that goes way back. <laughs> um, I've actually graduated from medical, medical school in 1983. So if you do the math there, it's, that was 35 years ago. Right. And um, as to why I became a physician, Um, I think that uh, it was a little unusual for women back then. I think when I went to medical school, there was only 10% women, and that's changed a lot. Now it's over 50% women. But I think a lot of it was that, like most people that go to medical school, I was very good in science. and At some point, I had to make a decision about, am I going to be somebody that stands at a bench and does chemistry and that sort of thing, or am I going to be out among people? And using my skills to help people, and I decided to go that route. So, and then one thing led, led to another after that. And I became an internal medicine physician. And the internal medicine physician is a, an adult, a, a physician for adults with complex medical problems, typically. So, um, and that's that's sort of what happened. Um, moved here to Tallahassee 24 years ago. And I've been at Capital Health Plan since then, first as a practicing physician, but gradually I have uh, morphed into more administrative roles, and I'm now the chief medical officer.
0: Very good, mm-hmm. very good. Tell us about your day-to-day work at Capital Health Plan. So you're you're not you're not doing practice anymore. Is that correct? I'm
1: not doing direct patient care now. Okay,
0: so none at all now. So you see a lot of the issues that impact the public from the standpoint mm-hmm. of. Healthcare issues or lack thereof, mm-hmm. and also the money side of it. Yes. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and what concerns you, or just whatever pops in your head regarding the future of healthcare in our country.
1: Well, well, first of all, CHP is a nonprofit organization, and we serve the seven counties up here in the panhandle. So we're a small health plan, we're a small nonprofit HMO, and the only product that we have is. Uh, HMO product, which um, is platinum coverage. And so what it means is that the people in our area have more access to platinum coverage, which means insurance pays uh, 90% or so of the medical costs. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that um, there's now a bit more and more of a switch to high deductible products, where people have like $2,000, $5,000 deductibles, that sort of thing. And that's actually one of the requests that we get a fair amount from employers, but you know that's not really what we do. We're a HMO, and we take it serious in terms of trying to manage the care for patients. And so I'm involved with the, the disease management programs, for instance. You know, how do we get diabetics the appropriate care across the um, community, no matter who their primary care doctor is, if they're seeing an endocrinologist, whatever. So we actually have um, worked on those types of things for. Uh, well, many, many years, and um, and that's uh, has paid off in terms of high quality and uh, those types of things. So, I work on a day-to-day basis a lot with the disease management programs, the pharmacy benefit, um, the uh, physicians in the community. Uh, so, all of those things.
0: And yeah, to take a minute for those who are listening and may not know what an HMO is, mm-hmm. explain the different levels: of HMOs, PPOs. Individual plans, just educate the audience, please.
1: Well, uh, HMO's health maintenance organization, and th- that is, uh, and there's, there used to be mo- a lot more of them than there are now, um, but generally the trade off is that you have comprehensive coverage. So, lots, most patients will have a co payment of, you know, let's say $15 or $40 or something like that, they're not paying a percentage of the actual bill, um, so it's it's that type of cost-sharing, which is relatively low. Um, but the, tr- the trade-off is you usually have a network of physicians um, and uh, the idea is to try to manage the care. So like, for instance, we try to, uh, when people have high blood pressure, we try to work with the physicians to manage that high blood pressure because we know that high blood pressure leads to stroke, which isn't good for anybody.
0: Nope.
1: <laughs> so um, it's that type of thing, so the managed care. Um, and. There's something called the Triple Aim, which is from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And something we pay attention to is to try to improve the service to our patients, um, to improve the quality of what the patients get, and to try to keep costs in an affordable range.
0: How did HMOs come about?
1: Oh, I think it was really an evolution from a long... I mean, there's HMOs that have, were from the turn of the century, you know, the early 1900s. But I think the government got very interested in them back in the 70s and made it possible for more to start up. And um, I think though that you know the more recent wave is to go to away from that is to say here's higher cost share and you know you you can do whatever you want but it's just going to cost you more money sort of thing. And and you asked about PPOs, preferred provider organizations, and they they typically will be. 20 like percent cost share within the network and then maybe 30 or 40 percent cost share outside the network so if you decide to go outside the network you have um, you know a higher cost and um, they rely on that sort of mechanism to to rein things in
0: from my perspective over the years of working with clients in the retirement planning side mm-hmm. it seems like what you do at capital health plan is help people prepare for what's coming down the road instead of all of a sudden I've had the heart attack or the stroke or high blood pressure. It's almost like you're helping manage the care.
1: We Would try you? to <clears throat> because we don't think those, those things are good for anybody, really. Sure. So, um, so for instance, you know, uh, statins are a drug that most diabetics should be on. So we actually try to see are they on it, are they taking it, that sort of thing. If somebody prescribed it. Um, and what is the glucose control? Are they being followed to get that measured at least annually? So we, fo- we try to follow all those things um, and, and our patients are typically just state of Florida, city, counties, the school teachers, you know a lot of our um, uh, members are the, the that uh, those from those groups. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you see as the biggest challenge for health care going forward? We know it's getting more and more expensive. We've talked about that several Mm -hmm. times. Uh, We just did a webinar yesterday on Medicare, Mm -hmm. and the cost for Medicare is going up, seems like, every year. Right. We know Medicare has issues, financial issues, Social Security, Medicaid. Mm -hmm. From a physician standpoint and having the advantage of seeing it from an administrative role based on being the chief medical officer. What are your concerns going forward?
1: Well, I think everyone agrees it's affordability. That I think Milliman, um, they, they do an index every year, and the average family um, insurance in the, across the U.S. now is $28,000 a year, which, of course, exceeds people's, many times, their income. So um, that's why Uh, That's the biggest problem, and that's the biggest problem in Medicare, Medicaid and every other program. Uh, And uh, there's uh, some estimates that about 30% of that money is wasted on unnecessary care, elective procedures that don't need to be done, et cetera. So that's that's the thing. It's like, we can't afford what we have, and yet we know there is significant waste in that. And how can we ratchet that back, so?
0: What do you say to the people who argue, because you hear a lot? We're spending too much money trying to prolong life beyond a certain point. Mm -hmm. From a, where's the ethical side of that? If we if we can help somebody live longer by giving good care, I have a sense that we should do that. But I hear other people, physicians, say, well, there's a there's a line. You know, how much how much more life can we squeeze out of that, and is it worth the cost?
1: Well, I, th- I think it's a good question. It's a really deeply personal question. Mm-hmm. I think part of, part of the problem is that people don't ask themselves that question because they, they let things happen. And the physicians have a, a view of it because they know basically what can be done and what can't be done. And so, for instance, physicians many times won't sign themselves up for the same therapies that um, patients will sign themselves up for, mm-hmm. because they, if you're talking about living, you know it, become, it becomes a quality of life issue. It doesn't become just you know more days, months, whatever. So um, there's actually a couple articles that are interesting. They call it "Why Doctors Die Differently," and they actually talk about how physicians don't sign themselves up for some of the care that is available, and it's because of, um, of course, knowing more about it.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from my dad. My dad died August 15, 2015. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, kidney cancer, he told the doctor, he said, I, I I'm not taking chemotherapy and no surgery. I'm going to just live the best I can with what I have. And all of us were against that at first. <clears throat> and my dad was out of me. He said, son, I'm not going to do that. My quality of life is important to me. And right up to the day he died, he insisted on that. And his physician one day told me, said John, your dad's right. This is his choice, not yours, it's not mine. Right. He he has the information he needs. You should respect that. Right. No, he I was very impressed with that.
1: I agree. And I think I think the main thing is for people to kind of think about, you know, what do I want for myself? No matter what that is. But then it's very important to communicate with the family and make sure the family agrees to go along with your personal wishes. Um, Just uh, There's a program at Big Bend Hospice called the Peace Program, where they try to get everyone, you know, the patient will say, to get the family there to say, no, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. And um, one of the things that we hear, I mean, we've seen over time, you know, some family member comes in from out of town and says, no, 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 don't, you know, I, I don't like that idea. Mm -hmm. that mom wants this and doesn't want that I don't like that idea and the whole idea then is to make sure everybody's on the same page and in fact if you choose a surrogate to like if you can't make talk or you're not um, aware you choose a person that can express your wishes and a lot of times it can't be a family member because many times family members can't do what you want them to do and I know of married couples where the spouse is not the surrogate because they can't do that. Right. So I know of people who have chosen their business partner um, to be their surrogate because that person is more likely to actually do and and uphold your wishes. Right. And that's what it's about.
0: Mm -hmm. Because they're not as emotionally involved.
1: Or or maybe they have more information. True. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing to say, oh, do everything, and you don't even know what do everything is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is everything, right? Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: From a cost standpoint, mm-hmm. if, if the average cost is $28,000 a year, and we know it's going up, and then, then we have things such as long-term care situations, okay, chronic care, so how, how do we as a nation continue to pay for all this?
1: Well, that's the problem. What it's doing is crowding out other things that people think are social goods, like education and highways and and all of these other... If you look at the federal budget, all of those things are getting crowded out. Yes. So if we think education is a good idea, um, and but we're crowding it out with health care, then you either have to raise taxes or cut back... You know, something has to happen. And in fact, um, in North Carolina just this week... Um, North Carolina said we need more money for education and highways and infrastructure. You know, build. We don't want these bridges falling down. And so, therefore, you know, the, the healthcare providers just need to start cutting their costs. You know, and um, and so I think we'll see more of that. And of course, there's a lot of talk now about single payer, you know, which is basically government payment uh, and moving in that direction to control those costs.
0: Well. We have the best health care in the world, we're told, but yet it's the most expensive.
1: Well, I guess it depends on which metric you're looking at. I think we have the best rescue care in the world. But if you actually look at... Um, wait,
0: wait a minute, back up. Say that again. Mm-hmm. We have the best what?
1: Rescue care.
0: Rescue care. Compared to what? Preventive care?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think France is number one. I, I, the U.S. is pretty way, well down in the double digits. Um, If you look at some of the the worldwide metrics, but that's where we put all the effort, like you're saying, end of life care, you know, once something happens, cancer care, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, those, you know, the U.S. is focused on that and, and does that very well.
0: Well, I know this. When I'm talking with people about planning for retirement, mm-hmm. one of the first things they tell us they're worried about is the cost of health care. Right. Whether it be the premiums they've got to pay or the out-of-pocket cost. Mm-hmm. And that's before you even get into such things as, what if I need to go into some type of long-term care situation? Right. And we're spending a lot of our time helping clients understand you may not know how to pay for everything, but you better be thinking about it because if all of a sudden... You don't have care and you go back to the expenses of Medicare almost unlimited, you know, what happens? Mm-hmm. So, we're trying to help people plan for that, but it's difficult because it's a moving target.
1: It is a moving target, but let me tell you, um, you no one, you and I, and anybody listening, cannot control the cost of health care per se. Correct. What people need to do is start focusing on the things they can control.
0: I've heard you say this a dozen times a Yeah, and, um,
1: <laughs> and so that's basically doing what your mother told you you should do, which is eat a healthy diet, get some exercise, proper sleep. Right. And, but some of those things just aren't that much fun. <laughs> so I think, I think that's the biggest problem. So the effort should be put into you know how do I stop um, eating highly processed sugary foods. That's probably the number one thing to do is stop buying stuff in a box. And if you can't get yourself around that, then you better start saving for healthcare.
0: It comes down to personal behavior.
1: And yeah, a lot. Of, uh, yeah, basically, um, health is at least fifty percent personal behavior on a day-to-day basis. The access to healthcare is only like fifteen percent. We have some genetics in there. We have. Social stuff, you know, where if you live in a neighborhood where bullets are whizzing around, you know, that's not very safe. Mm-hmm. But uh, over 50% of what happens to you, you know, you've done it yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 50% yeah. or, or over.
1: Yeah, just if you just look at what are the components of health, yeah, 50% is lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm. Over the years, I've accepted the fact that sometimes people refer to us as being money managers. Mm-hmm we're more of behavior managers mm-hmm. because if we can get people to monitor their behavior and pay attention to what they're doing they make fewer mistakes mm-hmm. and that's a good segue to talk about some of the conversations we've had over the years mm-hmm. how is it that you have been so interested in learning and reading as much as you do about financial planning retirement planning tax planning talk about that for a me
1: Because it's a reality. And, um, you know, that if you don't take responsibility for those things, you're just going to let them happen to you. So I think that um, the way I approached it years ago was being a physician, you know the ultimate outcome you're going to die, 100% chance of that.
0: Pop my bubble. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. No, really.
0: You're yes. gonna die. That's right. And question is when so right? if
1: you Right, the question's when. So if you accept that, think out to there and then work your way back. Right. So um so actually if you kinda of know your family history or you know your current health status and you can even go online and put in information about your gender and age and whether you smoke or not and, and come out with a life expectancy. Right. So if you say, okay, my life expectancy, mine comes out to be like 92 years, which is probably pretty good because of my parents' longevity and whatnot. Then you say, if I'm going to live to 92, let's work my way back from there. And if you start thinking about that, then you start, you know, all of a sudden you realize that retirement planning uh, isn't, um, you know, it isn't what if I need to do it. It's, you know how do I cover this segment of my life? And and you had that um, uh, tape measure example. Right. You know. And so, so if, but if you start at the end and then try to work your way back, if you start at the end and say, okay, I lived in 92, I'm going to be old lady. What are old ladies like? I've had decades of taking care of old ladies. Well, I can tell you they get frail. Yeah. You know, all these things. And like, what can you do to ameliorate that risk? Well... Uh, exercise pretty much helps, you know, those types of things. But, you know, so how do you how do you actually work your way back from that so that you can um, get more of what you want, so to speak, as you age? So you, you know, if you say, well, being independent is important. It's very important to me to be independent. Well, then you better get some exercise under your belt on a regular basis. You know, it's good to avoid the the classic health risks, you know, like smoking and um, eating the wrong foods or eating too much food. That's the biggest problem we have around here. Right. <clears throat> um, and um, uh, so you start working your way back to figure out what you should do now to ensure a better future for yourself.
0: It comes back to the quality of life. Exactly. The choices are make today and we see people that have been retired 25 30 years
1: mm-hmm.
0: in retirement mm-hmm. in some cases actually retired longer than they worked in their careers
1: mm-hmm. yeah and that's and that's sort mm-hmm. of a new phenomenon with uh, mm-hmm. and lot and not, not everybody knows quite how to handle that and um, and we know for instance that you know pensions and those types of things are becoming increasingly uncommon right You know, so how do you fund all of that? Like the
0: dinosaur becoming extinct. Mm -hmm. 401ks, IRAs, but defined benefit pension plans falling by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So it's all up to you. And if you've done a good job of saving the money, now you got to make it last for 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. In your case, I'm convinced you'll live to be 100. Oh really?
1: (laughs) Hopefully, I'm not too foopsy in the last five years of that. Mm -hmm.
0: Over the years, you and I have exchanged books or talked about books Mm -hmm. we've read. I have uh, a number of professional people like yourself who will say things such as this. I don't have time to read those things. I have a hard enough time to keep up with my career, my -hmm. profession. So how is it over time that you have made yourself or motivated yourself to take the time to read and study? Because you're one of the sharpest people I know when it comes to the financial side, especially in the medical profession.
1: I just make it a priority.
0: Okay. So n- n- no big secret. It's just, hey, I'm going to take the time, read and study.
1: Mm-hmm. And and that
0: comes down to anything that we want to have some level of mastery in.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, too, and um, I know you've heard me say this before, that you know, some people are more willing to fly by the seat of their pants, you know, and take a risk here, take a risk there. It doesn't where I like that solid floor. You know, I want to whether it's for me and my children. You know, I want to have you know the a solid floor beneath my feet. Um, and so the thing is, is how do you you know what do you have to do to get there?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're very disciplined.
1: Yeah. Well, apparently
0: you, you take the time. Mm-hmm to learn what needs to be done and then you act on the information when you get it. Mm -hmm. You have shared stories with me over the years about working with patients Mm -hmm. who would not do the things they needed to do and you've shared some interesting stories about how you would encourage people or motivate them to take action, can any of those pop in your head right now you can share?
1: Well, actually, sometimes people will say, I remember when you told me, and I'll say, I did say that? <laughs> well, like somebody told me the other day, I remember, Dr. Van Vessen, when you told me that if I didn't lose this weight, my knees would never stop hurting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and you were right, huh? <laughs> well, she actually lost the weight. That was great.
1: She and her mom went to the gym, and she was like, I mean, she was, and she goes, you're right, my knees stopped hurting. But um, but I think that's it. The idea is knowing at the end of the day, the consequences don't fall to the physician, the consequences fall to the person who didn't stop smoking, et cetera. And I think a lot of people, they vaguely feel betrayed if they're the one that gets lung cancer or, you know, even though they knew it was a possibility, they know people that it didn't happen to and those types of things. And so I think the main thing is to try to impart what you already know to be the case because you've seen it happen over and over again, and um, and so then it's but it's up to people to take those risks to say, well, you know, I've had patients tell me I really love to smoke. Smoking is the, the best thing in my life, and I just can't give it up. And I'm and so that's okay. Right. However, consequences there are just like every other decision you make in life. There's consequences, oh. mm-hmm. and maybe you'll get lucky,
0: and maybe you won't. Right. So. How do you deal with that as a physician I, I know when I'm trying to help someone with financial advice and they choose to ignore it or they google something that's contrary it's frustrating and I had to learn early on I've been doing this 43 years now I had to understand all I can do is guide and coach to a certain point if mm-hmm. somebody won't follow through then it's on them is that the way you have to deal with it as a physician also
1: it sure, if you believe in free choice, and um, I, I think one of the things that people don't quite understand though is a lot of times when they fall ill, it doesn't just fall to them; it falls to their family. So, yes. um, if somebody doesn't want to use glaucoma drops and they go blind, that becomes a much more difficult situation for whoever's ever taking care of them— their spouse or kids, whatnot. And and so I think just understanding that these things can happen. Um and, and I think people need the resources to try to do what they need to do. Um uh and but but again, having the resources and doing it are two different things. I mean, we see a lot of people that just um you know, they just choose to not be bothered by things. Um I remember this one diabetic patient telling me it was a type one diabetic. He was coming in for a shunt because he needed to go on renal dialysis, and he was um, in his thirties, I'd say. And he said the first twenty years weren't bad. Wow. So it's that type of thing where you think like, oh, I'm I'm getting along pretty well, but now all of a sudden, you know, things when you fall off the cliff, you fall fast and hard, and um, and so then it was like, uh oh, and the idea is not to get religion too late. And to try to a lot of the chronic disease we see, um, you know, is avoidable. Uh, it is now some isn't. Some people are just very unlucky, but a lot of the chronic disease we see in the U.S., you know, has to do with obesity is a big one. Um, in terms of you know being sedentary, I think now that's crossed over smoking as the biggest health risk, and um, so I think you know we have to say okay, well if I'm going to protect myself and my family from these chronic health problems, you know, I, I need to start putting a lot effort into it.
0: What advice would you offer people listening to this who say, okay, I hear this physician who is telling me I've got to make better choices. I have to deal with the consequences. So if you were just going to give a blanket type advice to anyone mm-hmm. when it comes to exercise, eating, healthcare in general, what would it be? Well,
1: I think the number one problem we have here in the U.S. is obesity, really, in terms of the contribution to the various cancers like breast, colon. All, I mean, it just really, we used to think fat just kind of sat there as a white lump, you know, inactive. Mm-hmm. But it turns out it's very active and produces all these bad things that affect your health. And so um, for that, I would suggest people buy this book called The Obesity Code. It's written by Jason Fung. He's a nephrologist, actually from Canada. And he, he sort of got disheartened by all the patients showing up for dialysis, many of whom are diabetic. And he wrote this whole book about you know, why, why people can't lose weight, really. And it has to do with your, your native insulin levels and those types of things. And so the idea of changing the way you eat, you know, just eating healthier, eating less, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and um, to try to get down to, because those extra pounds are really harmful, particularly as you age. You know, it's, it's really a major contributor to arthritis of the knee that leads, needs to knee replacement, because you all have pounds per square inch right. on your knee. So a lot of these things- And your back. That cause pain <clears throat> and disability, which nobody wants to have pain and disability are, are related to all of that. But it's not easy and it's not fun. And so, but I think what it is, is like everything else in life, you get used to things. If you get used to eating less or eating healthier or not eating the dessert, you get used to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I keep that heart-shaped pillow over there to remind me of my heart surgery. Mm-hmm. July 10th would be 10 years ago. And when I got serious about exercising and eating, eating the right foods and the right quantities, I went from 284 pounds. Now I bump around 230, mm-hmm. 232 sometimes. But now if I don't go walk 30 to 40 minutes or go to the gym, mm-hmm. now it's like, oh, I don't feel good because I didn't do it. Right. Whereas in the past, I didn't want to go do it. I just sat on the couch. Mm-hmm. you know. So it is a matter of making some of these things a habit right and just getting used to it and enjoying it
1: right and i think that's it because once you start doing it then you realize you feel a whole lot better than you used to feel so it's not even for the long-term health effects you're doing it you're doing it because you'll feel better today
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. but
1: mentally and physically
0: what went through my head though when you're talking about the knees earlier what i remember having the most improvement in i mean almost instantly Mm -hmm. within 30 days I could tell a difference not only in my knees but also in my ankles and my lower back Mm -hmm. because I had back surgery in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed that when I started dropping the pounds that all the joints were just better. Right. Even the elbows because I was doing martial arts. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everything was better because I was moving.
1: (laughs) Well, the thing is your, your body was only meant to handle so much. Right. You know, like your heart. If you, they say there's I've read this I don't they say there's a mile of blood vessels for every extra pound you
0: have say that again
1: yeah what I've read obviously i't have is that there's a mile of blood vessels because you have all those little capillaries that have to be right up against every cell or it dies of blood vessels per extra pound and a your mile heart. your heart has vessels. to pump to it So that's why when people get overweight or really overweight, their hearts just, they get enlarged and get really muscular, just like your muscles would if you're working hard. They wear out. But then it's hard it starts wearing out. Yeah, you're really stressing your whole system. And so, um, and most of weight loss is what you eat, like 75%. Everyone thinks, oh, my knees hurt, so I can't exercise. Really in terms of putting fat on and keeping it on, 75% is what you eat. And then in terms of exercise, you don't have to become a marathoner. You know, pretty much it's, you know, go walk for a half hour, you know, three, four, or five times a week, you know, and you know, get keep moving. That movement is very important for your joints. That's what they were meant to do. So,
0: so true. Tell us the name of the book again. Obesity Code.
1: The 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 Obesity Code by in? Jason Fung. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. I mean, right. it, it doesn't. You don't have to look far along, but that's just the more recent one I've seen, and I think that what what he tries to explain to people that if you eat carbs all the time and keep your insulin levels up, the high insulin levels are what make you suck on, you know, it's meant to save calories onto your body for right. hard times that never come. Right. So you've got to stop stimulating your insulin level. If your insulin level's high, and it'll be high for 20, 30 years before you get You know, you get more and more insulin resistant. You probably heard that term. Yes. Until you flip into type 2 diabetes.
0: Okay. Yeah. If I tuned in and I'm listening to this, I might be the kind of person So you know, I hear about all these different diets. You Mm -hmm. got got a low-carb diet. You got a high-protein diet. You got all this. What in the world should we be eating?
1: Well, you know, I think the problem is that general advice, and, you know, stuff that comes out of the government, for instance, that's for your average healthy 30-year-old. If you've got a problem already, let's say you're pre-diabetic or you're diabetic,
0: okay.
1: you've okay, already got a problem, and your problem is you've got to lose that weight. And a lot of that, it has to do with... Um, and low-carb Mediterranean is the diet that's been shown, like for men to lose more belly fat and all of that sort of thing. Because you wanna you don't wanna keep stimulating your insulin levels. You wanna get that down so you can actually burn some of that fat. Right. And so the other thing is is you can't be eaten all the time. You know, this whole idea of six meals a day or whatever, I don't that might work for somebody who's hypoglycemic and age twenty five, but for your average adult in America, mm, not good advice. You want, you want to, um, in a lot of the countries where people don't gain as much weight, you know, we talk about the French, oh, they're French, they have all these rich sauces. Well, they eat three times a day.
0: Right.
1: And they, they're, the eating is, they they call it a restricted eating window, that you're only eating, you know, like maybe an over 12-hour period, where in the U.S., people have started pushing that out, you know, and...
0: Eat all day. And all
1: night, <laughs> and then wonder what's what's going on. Yeah. So... But, and, and so that's it. It, it, it. It's sort of like end of life care planning. Who are you? And if you're a, so the advice for a healthy 25 year old is going to be different for a 60 year old that's insulin resistant.
0: Well, let me challenge you mm-hmm. on something here. A lot of people listening to this because it's the mm-hmm. Secure Retirement podcast are in their 60s, 70s, some in their 80s and 90s.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's just say mid 60s. hmm. What would the advice look like or sound like for someone mid-60s, maybe 70 years old, that they're doing the exercise, but you said a moment ago, and I wrote this down, because every time I'm with you, I learn something. 75% of weight loss is what you eat. Mm-hmm. So in their situation, would you say anything differently? To that's me, mid- I'm 65 years old. But so, see,
1: you. what's the gender? What's the weight? What's the chronic health problems? So the thing is, is that you can't really just, you know, in general, the general things are stay away from processed food, stay away from sugar. Um, You know, if you do, if you are trying to lose weight, you're going to have to knock down your calories some, you know, and then the studies show carbs versus fats, that sort of thing. But a lot of it has to do with, let's say you have kidney disease already. Well, all of a sudden, you're, you need to be watching your protein intake. So it really depends on
0: as in having more protein. less, less.
1: So so that's what kind of, it like that's why I want to say it depends because it does depend. That's why um, you know, one size doesn't fit all, really. Because there's plenty of sixty and seventy year olds that are popping around out there that are doing perfectly fine, just what they're doing. True. They don't need to change anything.
0: I see them in the gym. There's nine right. of us that work out together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There are people in their half our age can't keep up.
1: Right. So, th- so it, there's a there's a wide diversity, and um, that that has to do with what they've done their whole life. You know, their li- your lifestyle starts catching up with you, definitely by that age. You know, if you've um, I used to see it about age 50. You'd know, you have 50-year-old patients that look 60 and ones that look 40. And some of that's genetics, but a lot of it has to do with, you know, what were you doing for the previous 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> We've got about five minutes left. I know you you've got a schedule today. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about your the next step for you in your your training and your knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you love what you do. You are reading and studying constantly. Uh, we're not going to reveal your age, but from the standpoint of a professional woman, it seems like you're not slowing down. It seems like that you're you're doing other things you want to do, but mm-hmm. you're constantly learning and growing. Well, I it's think it's contagious.
1: <laughs> well, there's just so much to know, it's true. and 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 the thing is, is that the more I learn, you know. It benefits me personally too.
0: Sure, it benefits you personally, mm-hmm. and you get to help other people. Right. That's, that's why I love doing these podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we people are calling us and hey, thank you so much. I'm learning about things that have nothing to do with money. Mm-hmm. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with money per se, but if you retire and you've got a lot of money, folks, but you're in poor health, what good is the money?
1: Not very much. You can't enjoy
0: it, and you're going to leave it behind for someone else.
1: Right. Exactly. Uh, well, I think that, and but it's not only me. I think there's a lot of this, and we see it more in the young doctors too. Um, this, you know, we talked about the American healthcare system's a rescue system. You know, you sort of waltz around doing whatever you want to do, and then when the bad thing happens, and bad things happen fast, you know, you're like, "Help, help!" And um, and so I think this idea of saying, like, "Wait a minute, let's try to ratchet this back," and you know, what's it going to take? Um, you know, to kind of change what the, um, they call the standard American diet, the sad diet, you know, for instance. So what's it going to take to have people, you know, um, eat a, eat a healthier diet. And, but a lot of times it's just eating less. Yes. We get too much, we get too many calories and uh, or to stop eating out as much where because that's a huge thing you know with because you don't have any idea many times how much what you're getting and of course restaurants need to make that food taste good so you keep coming back so that I think people should look over and say like if I if I really want to age and be healthy and you'll be able to pick up my grandkids you know when I'm 75 years old right. then what do I need to do right now to get there and, and the thing is, is that um, it's been shown that even people in nursing homes, in bed, with physical therapy, can get stronger. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at it, some point in time in life, there's going to be a time where it's too late. But it's amazing how resilient the body is if you just do a modicum of the right things on a regular basis.
0: I remember one time you sitting here and you were talking about I don't know if it was an experiment or if it, if it's Scientific mm-hmm. research, what it was on the cutting back on the calories and the dramatic improvement it had in people who already were sick. Do you remember that study you, well, you mentioned?
1: Well, I don't know about people who are sick, but it's been shown to improve longevity.
0: That might have been the issue. Yeah. But I just remember you're talking about just changing the amount of food, right? Not necessarily of what, but the amount of food, right? Improved the longevity, right? And then when you started working on the quality of the food, it made even better improvement.
1: And then if you read Dr. Fong's book, it's also about when you eat. You know, you can't you can't be eating at midnight and going to bed and stuff like that. I mean, basically our bodies are pretty primitive. They were. You know they're not a whole lot different than they were a hundred years ago, and but some of what we have, which is which is sheer luxury, in our current you know um, uh, way that we live, you know that we have all of this great food, um, um, too rich, but you know food that wasn't really available to everybody even a hundred years ago, but um, what we have to do is to say wait a minute our bodies. We're designed for X, and we're giving them Y, and that's why we're going to have more problems. And um, so I I think that, you know, he talks about this idea of of not eating as much, of um, giving your body time to reset, all of those types of things. And and I think there's a lot of good information in there.
0: Mm -hmm. I'll be getting that book. I'm going to read that. Okay. Closing thoughts. What would you like to end with just sharing with our audience and just any thoughts that you have, whether it be from the world of healthcare, financial planning, retirement planning, money management, whatever you'd like to share?
1: I think the thing is, is that a lot of these things, if you apply yourself, whether it's about your own personal health and what you should do or about financial aspects or how do I get what I want at the end of life, You can do that, but you you do have to apply a little effort. But anybody who has access to the Internet, you know, has a wealth of information at their fingertips. Um, But again, you have to sort of say, well, I really need to do this, you know, not only for myself, but for my family and get these get my affairs in order, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And if you get them in order a lot, like when you're my age, then it's not a big old scramble, you know, when you're 20 years older than me. Uh, so, I think that's it, is to, to sort of take a measured approach like that. And in things like health and lifestyle choices, it pays you, just like you were saying, your joints stopped hurting within 30 days. You don't, it, don't, it doesn't only pay off 20 years down the road, but it pays off right now.
0: It does. But you know, when you start doing the research and the studying, there's such a misery of choice too. There's so many different opinions.
1: Well, I really think that you know, and I would say this because I was a primary care doctor for years and years. That if you have, you should have a primary care doctor, and you should go ask them. You know, to say, okay, um, and you know, I'm a type two diabetic. Whatever you know, they they should have an understanding of your health problems, and so ask. You know, and some of the things are the same. Don't eat processed foods, Limit your sugars. That's true for yeah. everybody across the board. Right. But then to just say, well, really, what should I be doing? And some doctors are gonna say, I think you should be on a plant-based diet. Go eat some plants. Hmm. You may not like that advice, but that's pretty <laughs> good advice. So I, I think that's what I would do. And, um, and that's basically, basically your expert, so to speak. Um, and don't get all wound up into this supplement, that supplement, the other thing. That, that's kind of an excuse for confusion. Because right. at the end of the day, the basic building blocks are, they're hard to do, but they're simple to understand.
0: Stick with the basics. Mm-hmm. Very good. Great session. Nancy Van Vessel, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
2: If you would like to know more about John Curry services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com podcast, or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities products and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a Registered Broker, Dealer, and Investment Advisor, Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances. Not a field with the Florida Retirement System. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York, copyright 2005 through 2018. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are thereof.